0: They were probably married, this couple walking back from Jerusalem toward Emmaus, where they were from, and they had left everything to follow Jesus, a journey that probably started when they encountered him along the road, and they came to believe that he had a cause worth fighting for, a cause worth giving everything up for. He was, they thought, the one who would redeem Israel. Not only that, this Messiah, this one who would set them free from Roman pagan rule was also the most charismatic person they had ever met. Completely authentic and real, forgiving, loving, gracious, grounded in this persona that they had never seen before. None was like him. And now he was dead. And they were left heartbroken, depressed, and hopeless. The road on which they had chosen to follow Jesus had turned into a dead end. Everything that they had believed and given themselves over to for the past couple of years came crashing down by the darkness of his death two days earlier. Have you ever been on that road? You give yourself to your partner, you make your marriage vows for life until death do us part, to honor, respect, love. And then you wake up one morning and you have to acknowledge the fact that your marriage is a dead end. Or maybe your partner dies. Have you ever been on that road? You finally think you have figured out what it is you're supposed to do with your life, So you sell some things and you earn a little capital and you buy a little business and you start up the business and you start working hand over foot to make it work and not long into it, it becomes clear it's not gonna work, it's a dead end. Maybe it's someone you start believing in, a hero like Lance Armstrong or Oscar Pistorius, the Blade Runner, Finally, there are some good heroes around and then the news confronts you with the sordid truth. Friends, we face dead ends all the time, but the worst of them happens when we lose our faith in God. I was asked while in Atlanta to meet with a young couple who had grown up and attended a very conservative church. They had apparently sought out some help after losing their college-age daughter in a traffic accident. And part of their grief was not only the loss of their daughter, but also the loss of their faith in God. You see, they had been led to believe that if they were good Christians and they read the Bible and they went to church and they did everything just right, that God would be their Messiah and would protect them and redeem them from all harm. Their faith had come to a dead end. When your faith and trust in God or whatever it is you believe in as your Savior comes to a dead end, you have no hope left. That doesn't mean there is no hope. That's what's going on with these two as they make their way back, those seven miles or so to Emmaus. Their faces are cast down in despair, sadness, and disappointment, a stranger walks up to them and asks, What's going on? We know it's Jesus, but they don't. Their eyes were kept from recognizing them him, the text says. And as they walked along, they started discussing with him everything that had happened in Jerusalem as if he didn't know. How they there was this one, this mighty prophet in word and deed, named Jesus, and how they had thought he was in fact the Messiah, the one who would redeem Israel but now he was handed over to the the Roman authorities and then crucified. He was dead. And not only that, some women had gone to the tomb early that morning and discovered that the tomb was empty and that there was even some word that maybe he had not died or was still alive or something they didn't understand. Still, no one as yet has recognized the resurrected Christ. IT'S LATE AFTERNOON IN LUKE'S STORY, THIS EASTER STORY, AS YET THERE ARE NO RECORDED EXPERIENCES OF RECOGNIZING THE RISEN CHRIST, ACCORDING TO LUKE, UNTIL NOW, WELL, ALMOST. IRONICALLY, HE WALKS ALONG WITH THEM AND THEY STILL ARE CLUELESS. Now this is not unusual according to all biblical accounts. In every post-resurrection story, the disciples didn't recognize Jesus until he did something that was peculiarly Jesus-like, particular only to Jesus and the only way Jesus could have done it. In John's Gospel, for instance, Mary goes to the tomb and finds it empty. She runs outside the tomb and throws herself on the ground, grieving, anxious that someone had stolen Jesus' body. She feels this presence beside her. She thinks it is the gardener until this presence speaks out and says, Mary, Mary. Calls her by name in just the way he had called her name before in just only the way Jesus could have done it. And then she knew that it was the resurrected Christ. And it's true here in the same Luke story. As they approached their home since it was late, they invited the stranger to stay with them. And as they sat at table, Jesus Now the host reaches out, takes a loaf of bread, breaks it, just as he had done that last supper two days earlier, and handed it to him. They saw it, and he was gone. That fast. What if, in fact, the resurrected Christ is like this? All the time on whatever road we are on, our eyes may not recognize him, but he is there. If so, then why are we so dadgum blind to him? I think it might be because we have been living the wrong story and expecting the wrong Messiah. Our truth claims about life are not exactly correct, like this couple on their way back to Emmaus. They had based whatever they believed about Jesus on an old story that they had grown up with about the redemption of Israel. In fact, it's the story we all are brought up on. And the story goes that sooner or later, someone or something will swoop into our lives and bail us out of our troubles. Someone out there will eventually swoop in and fix things, heal our boo-boos, fight our battles, and save us from our demons, and make it so we can live life happily ever after. In Israel's case, as I said, the story was about the Messiah that would finally come and liberate Israel from the Roman rule and put them back on top as they once were when David was king. We had thought he was the one to redeem Israel. No wonder we're so blind, if that's who we expect. There's a phenomenon about us, it's psychological, but it's more than that, that we tend to see or perceive only what we already believe. It's not so much that seeing is believing, it's that we believe, and in our belief, we see through the lens of that belief to see what our perception of reality is. Say we develop a bad impression about someone first off, and then from then on, no matter what that person does, we believe that person's a jerk, no matter what the facts may say. Or we like a particular politician, and no matter what he or she does, we still like him, and even reinforce our like by listening to the right newscast that reinforces our already beliefs. Now there's a name for this, believe it or not, and at the risk of losing you, just hang in there, it's called W-Y-S-I-A-T-I. And what it means is, what you see is all there is. This phenomenon is true in all our lives. We see something, maybe anecdotal, momentarily, one little smidgen of fact, and from then on, What we see is all there is. It's now universal. It's hyperbolically general. It's everything because we've perceived it in this one event. Let's say you buy a car, a Cadillac. Sorry GM fans, Cadillacs are great cars, but you buy a Cadillac and this one happens to be a lemon. From then on, all Cadillacs are bad. What you see is all there is. The problem with that is you see that we only have about, actually, less than that in terms of the full sense of knowledge of reality. Physicists are saying that, you know what, 70% of all reality is dark matter, and 26%, excuse me, 24% is dark energy. That is to say, it cannot be seen or perceived. So therefore, 94% of all reality is beyond our perception. And if, in fact, our perception is that which is seen through our own belief system, then how much real truth is it that we actually get here? We see what we believe or expect to see. Maybe that's why so often it takes great disappointment or loss for us to be opened up to a new perspective. Now you may have already read about the amazingly popular book by the neurosurgeon, Dr. Eben Alexander. I can go both ways here. He graduated from North Carol- University of North Carolina and then went to Duke for medical school. Now he's at UVA. Now his book is an unfortunate title, I think, Proof of Heaven, because when it comes to things that truly matter, you cannot prove them. And I suspect his editors probably got hold of the title and changed it. The point is that he discovered this massive paradigm shift, this change of heart after he was infected with a rare E. coli virus that invaded his neocortex, his brain, the human part of our brain that basically is the seat of human consciousness. He begins his book by confessing. I went to our Episcopal Church with Holly and the kids on occasion, but the fact was that for years I'd only been one step above a C and E Christian, those who come only at Christmas and Easter. i had never escaped my feelings of doubt at how any of it could really be. As much as I had grown up wanting to believe in God and an afterlife, decades in the rigorous scientific world of academic neurosurgery had profoundly called into question how such things could exist. The older I got, like an ocean wearing away at a beach, over the years, my scientific worldview gently but steadily undermined my ability to believe in something larger. Then his whole world changed when he was infected and hospitalized in extremely critical condition for seven days with no brain function, no cerebral cortex, no sense of consciousness, only he had a sense of consciousness. He had these out-of-body or near-death experiences over a seven-day period, these NDEs that he had heard about from all his patients but never given them a second thought, always thought that it was some physiological or scientific explanation for it. But in his own experience, he had such an experience of beauty and connectedness to all things that he that he knew that there were no words that he could use to describe it. So he sums his whole experience up with three things that he learned. The first is that we are loved and cherished by the ground of our being. The second is that we have nothing to fear, really. And the third is that ultimately, there is nothing that we can or have done wrong. It turns out that Dr. Eben Alexander was adopted as a small child and had harbored deep down a sense that he was not worth keeping. All of his life he had spent trying to earn his way into a sense of worthiness. But he always knew that someone had thrown him away. And that's how he felt. But this experience, this near-death experience for him, taught him that ultimately, In a way, we're all orphans, and in a way, none of us are. That we are all connected to this other, larger family. I know this sounds completely, this is a neurosurgeon. He writes, to beings who watch over us, beings who have momentarily forgotten, that we have momentarily forgotten, but who, when, and if we open ourselves to their presence, are willing to help us navigate our road here on Earth And none of us, according to their love of us, are ever unloved by the ground of being. He says, I was blind, but now I see. As I understood just how blind to the full nature of the spiritual universe we are on earth, especially people like me who have been taught that matter was all that mattered, and that all else, consciousness, thought, ideas, emotions, spirit, were simply productions of it friends it doesn't take a near death experience thank goodness at least for most people to begin to see the resurrected Christ on whatever road we walk beside us with us but what it does take is our willingness to expect to see him to give up the old biased stories and to open ourselves to a new one, to begin to work the discipline of opening ourselves up to that new one through prayer and meditation and forgiveness and fellowship and charity and above all, gratitude. This is the joy of Easter and the hope of Easter. If by whatever road you have come to get here, you have come this morning maybe expecting to see Jesus only in the successful, winning, joyful, good-feeling places of life, only in those emotional highs, only in positive outcomes, only in the place where Jesus will ride on in and save us. If, you, if you've come in with that expectation and you want to continue to live by that story, Good luck, but it will not be Jesus that you find walking beside you. Well, he'll be there, but you won't see him. The truth is that all of life is not a hallelujah course. But the end is. We walk the road of hardship and disappointment. He had to suffer and then be raised into his glory. We have to face roads that sometimes have dead ends. We learn about suffering in our own life. And this is the power of Easter. It is in the dead end that we discover who he is and learn that the resurrected Christ is right there beside us, behind us, and in front of us. On whatever road we find ourselves, however many times we've walked down it, We are loved no matter what. That nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not height, nor depth, nor anything present, nor anything past, nor angels, nor principalities, nor even the cross of Jesus Christ will be able to separate us from the love of God. And if we're able to see that and expect that, anything is possible. But that's not all. Because of Christ's presence with us, we come to see that what we thought was dead and long gone is in fact really just the beginning the beginning point where we are given the energy and the resources and the love and the strength to start over and get back out into the road again and again and again. Amen. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.